Hello, early musicers. Today, we welcome back an old friend, Andrew Maxfield. Old as in friend from a while ago, not in age. He's not that old, even though he may feel that old. That's up for him to decide. But this episode of The Andrew Special features a menu of a kind of mixed bag discussion. We'll talk about Sound of Age's most recent narrative concert, Sing Actually, the ultimate choral rom-com, and some entrepreneurial trends we see in the choral market and some of the directions we're trying to go as Sound of Age's and composer-in-residence. And it's gonna be mental. That's Michael Scott for It's Gonna Be Mental. This is Early Music Monday. Well, we're back. Drew is back. It's early morning on a Thursday. Early Thursday morning music Monday. (laughs) Just like the name implies. Yes, yes. (laughs) Drew, just tell us what you've been up to as a composer these days. Actually, just as a musician in general. It's been a long time since the last Andrew special, and we just need an update. Yeah, well, I've been I've been waiting for this moment. Everything else that I've done has led to this conversation. It's all basically preparation. That's, I like feel I wrote, I wrote a symphony, just preparation for this conference conversation. We premiered wow. some. You and I, we premiered some music at Carnegie Hall. That was just preparation. It was just for it moment. was just so we could have something cool to talk about here. <laughs> <laughs> That's so real, though. Well, <laughs> maybe life is one giant preparation for that. Maybe maybe living after the manner of preparation is yeah. always finding the next opportunity. Does that make like me I, a prepper? Yeah, dude, you're <laughs> such a prepper. I'm such a in your in your proverbial compositional bunker. (laughs) Well, I figure that um, even really good composers dissolve into oblivion pretty fast, (laughs) and um, and and you know maybe my best hope for uh, prominence is posthumous anyway. So (laughs) wow, uh, I feel like I'm I'm just preparing. Prepare and actually, I may be very, um, if you know, from a career and craft perspective, I think I may be very advanced because I've already arrived <laughs> in obscurity. <laughs> Every composer should be so lucky. Seriously, I don't know why we don't have lines of composers waiting to just talk to us about your experience. Yeah, that's right. That sounds like, like a good band, like uh, an indie folk techno duo is the posthumous oblivion that's the name of the band posthumous oblivion yeah well i'm there man it's got a good ring to it yep yep there we both are that could be our duo 
the maybe instead of sound of ages we can change it to the posthumous oblivion yeah that's right i mean uh, that's the that's the glowing fate the, that awaits awaits most people who bother writing art music or performing it for that matter or performing it <laughs> <laughs> Well, oh, man. this and other cheery news on a Thursday morning. Yes. Well, me and me and you, you and I, two of us, have had several epic conversations regarding music. Yeah. Over the pat over the past year, we've done some cool things, including the Carnegie Hall thing, and the and the sing actually the the rom com. Andrew, tell us from your perspective about those things. How how was it? What was what was it like? What was your what were your highs? What was the uh, big takeaways? Well, first big takeaway is uh, beware of Cameron Kavanaugh because um, you never know what's going to happen. You never know what's going to happen next. <laughs> and and so far, only Cameron Kavanaugh has, uh, has in- influenced me such that I found myself on stage acting and doing lines as some kind of crazy narrator, character, person. And um, who knew that you would fit the role so, so well? Not the well, role of the character, the role of the actor. The actor, yes. Well, I, I you know, if if they were casting somebody as the hopelessly jaded uh, <laughs> narrator for a classical music con- concert, look no farther. Do you feel or like further, you've been you typecasted? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm in, sorry. In sort of all all dimensions of my life. <laughs> it was unintentional. Uh, well, let's see. Okay, so sing actually. Let's talk about that for a second. So let's let let's take ourselves back, Cam, to like okay. what was it a year ago or something? A year oh, ago, and yeah. we were asking ourselves questions like, "What could you do with the format of a choral music concert to?" Not to make the music more interesting, because that sounds like we're pandering or something. It sounds or being apologetic somehow. Apologetic, yeah. But what can you do with the format that gives some gives people something new or unexpected? And we came up with this idea of what we ended up calling a narrative concert, where the there is a story thread that stitches a concert together from beginning to end. And it's not without precedent because um, some great ensembles have been experimenting with things like this, Ifa Jolini, Skylark, um, and we tip our hats to them doing great work where they are. Yeah, Um, such such good stuff. Yeah, but we, I, I don't remember exactly what led to what, but we struck on the idea of doing a narrative and then Initially, it was kind of a heavy idea, but then we pivoted and turned it into something that was kind of light, and um, we called it Sing Actually, patterned after the silly rom-com Love Actually, and then the the story became a sort of a parody riff on a riff of rom-coms, all rom-coms kind of poking fun at the template. We roped in 
my frequent collaborator, a uh, writer librettist named Ruthie Prellman, came up with a, I think a pretty clever, funny story about this. Oh, it was, I thought it was genius. Jaded protagonist and his or her sort of, you know, hopeless love life turned hopeful, turned hopeless, turned whatever. And well, then, it, and so if that's yeah. like the the thread of the necklace, then the, and then the beads were these great madrigals. Yeah, the thing that works so well about the script, I think, is that it was it was one of those where it was a satire that was poking fun of the genre, while also being the genre itself. Oh yeah, and so it so it totally worked as like not taking itself too seriously, poking fun at it, but then it also played into the template well enough to where it was actually meaningful. And so it I, I don't know how it played how you guys played that that line so well, but it was it was so brilliant. Well that was I mean Ruthie did all the the genius story work, but I think it's it was and it was kind of meta, right? Because Right. Uh, we're at a point now in our in our pop culture where most people have seen rom-com movies and they sort of know the template, even if they don't maybe know it articulately, they just sort of have a sense for what's coming yeah. next. And the minute that that story template is widely shared, poof, you have the chance to talk yeah. about the temp about the template itself. Right. Uh, and that that was very fun yeah super fun the like right on cue something terrible happens like everyone knows that's coming because it's almost like you can't even enjoy the first moment when things start to get happy because you know there has to be this journey through the wilderness first (laughs) before the happy ending and so you just sit there and wait for the bad part (laughs) right so so when you're doing that you and you can draw attention to like like you said to the to the arc itself then it then it just becomes um humorous and yeah people let their guard down and laugh about it and well yeah i mean two things first is that i feel like we from day one we were always doing it in service of the the art and the yeah the audience experience inside of a a choral music experience yeah and trying to draw sort of a big circle around what that could be um and then the second thing is this you know i i remember hearing this story about uh brett goldstein who's one of the writers of ted lasso mm-hmm. um he was in the, the writing room and they were creating this you know grumpy old soccer player character named Roy Kent and it, at one point he looked at it looked at the character looked at everybody else and said you know oh bleep I think this is me and <laughs> you know so we started with this <laughs> we started with this this noble artistic goal of making something that would you know crack open some possibilities in um the choral music scene here and really, I, I think just, you know, 100% for the for the art of it. And then at some point when we started making this script and this idea, not, I mean, I looked at it and said, ah, crap, I think this is me. 
partially because who else are you going to recruit to do something <laughs> nutty like that that uh you know it'll, it kind of defies category description except that everybody that encounters it loves it uh yeah. so there i was yeah dude it was your big debut my big debut straight well, to and carnegie it was... hall yeah, it was amazing. We got to, so we did it in Springville, Utah, in the Springville Museum of Art. And that was a really cool place to do it because. Very cool venue. It was like, I think, thinking about this out loud, it's like one of those things where we're not trying to, it's like you said before, we're not trying to apologize for the art of choral music itself and even like okay so i was looking at these madrigals right and i was like man these are hilarious and so so ridiculous and oh yeah well but the thing is they're hilarious they're hilarious if you know enough exactly to get inside of them that's exactly the, that's the puzzle with a lot of our choral literature is both the you know, it's a little bit rarefied because both it's historical and uh, <laughs> it's there, there's sort of like an informed, you know, there's a level of uh, uh, savviness that helps understanding mm -hmm. what the stuff is. Um, but well, and it's kind of uh, like Shakespeare in that way. Oh, yeah. Where it's like, yeah. you know, Shakespeare is hilarious, but th there is kind of this barrier that is time and culture. Yeah, I I don't yeah. think it's imposed by anyone. Like some people will say it's elitist. I, I don't think it's that. It's not intentional. It's just it was a long time ago, and he was doing things like the the, the culture and the unspoken things of their culture and their time were totally infused in that writing. And so the more you know about it, the more you pick up on those nuanced jokes and those nuanced innuendos and those nuanced little cues. And so I was like, how do we get the audience inside these madrigals? Because they're so funny Bingo. and so melodramatic. And so it's like, okay, well, you know, if you're trying to do something in my mind, if you're trying to, well, it's this principle. I don't know if it really relates. It's just the first thing that came to my head. I went to an auto body shop to take my vehicle we just went from shakespeare to auto body shop yeah it's gonna tie it okay it's gonna be I'm, a roundabout i'm here for are this. you ready okay yeah buckle yeah, yeah, up. yeah yeah bring so, it so i went to this auto body shop because our truck had a unfortunate incident and we needed to replace the bumper and so and i i looked at it's art city actually so springville shout out to art city auto they're amazing but they have this sign on their door and it says fast good, cheap. And then underneath it, it said, you get to pick two. And I was like, that is genius. <laughs> and so it's kind of like, you know, when you're, when we, I was creating this concert, I was like, okay, we have, we have madrigals. We have the concert, concert format, tradition, traditional concert format. And a traditional venue and those 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 don't even those don't even make sense i guess in this situation but it's like you get to pick two things so it's like if you're if you're going to radicalize one thing 
like the concert format, you have to keep the others relatively constant. Otherwise, it's too much all at one time. People like Schoenberg yeah. and Stravinsky and and you know modern artists. I'm thinking about Jackson Pollock. They may disagree with that, and and rightfully so. Like it's definitely you got to give the devil his due. So it's not the end all be all. But for our ensemble and for my for my money, if we're trying to reach as many people as possible and keep the you know, we sang those magicals straight up and like as pure as they were could be with our aesthetic. And so if we're going to keep that so constant, then we have to change some of the other things maybe in order for them to be let into the music. So that way we're not sacrificing. Because if it's like we keep the traditional concert format where we stand and sing, Maybe it, maybe we have to change the what we're singing in order to like bring people in, meet meet them where they're at, and bring them in. But well, I think it's you know. a, I think it's an interesting puzzle to solve and a worthy puzzle to solve to pivot back from the auto body shop to Shakespeare. I think <laughs> yeah. one of the things that seems like it makes Shakespeare harder is often we asso- we associate Shakespeare with english class and with mm, yeah, teachers true. and i think in academia we tend to make things we, we sometimes we make things worse by trying to be specialists about historical context and uh you know all of these dimensions of expertise that that have their place and that do really matter but i think that uh you know but this that that sort of problem is true in early music too where oftentimes you know it feels like you can't how dare you you know sing this music if you don't have a phd in historical musicology and blah 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 blah. so you've got that on the one hand and then on the other hand i contrast that with the experience i've had so many times where if i go to a shakespeare play and it's in the hands of really great actors there's always a there's always a couple of minutes at the beginning of a play where it, it's it I have to um, it's kind of like you have to listen long enough to start understanding and filtering and interpreting that sort of Elizabethan English mm-hmm. all over again. But mm-hmm. the moment it clicks and you and you don't have to do the like active translation, then you can just be present in the dialogue. If it's in the hands of great actors, that sense of time mm. collapses, that di- that distance collapses, and you're right there. And the funny stuff is so funny. And yeah. The clever stuff is so clever, and the deep stuff is like so beautifully profound, right? Yeah. And completely. The thing that the, the issue I, I have is that um, having heard lots and lots of choral music, lots of music generally, mm-hmm. um, I feel like our sit down and listen concert format is oftentimes it it air it it makes some of the errors of that kind of like heavy heaviness of the academic overlay where like this is important and you should like it and let me tell you all of the important historical reasons that i have come up with through (laughs) all of my doctoral studies to make you feel like this is important so there's that like there's a heaviness and kind of like a stodgy self-importance that can that can mm-hmm. be, be foisted on the music. 
And then the format, the sit down and listen format, sometimes I think it's kind of like holding people in the first five minutes of a Shakespeare play where they don't get past that magical threshold where the mm. the historical uh that like time barrier it it, it hasn't like collapsed false. yet and yeah. i understand the argument they're like well just just sing palestrina and let the music do its own talking and i'm i totally get that argument but i feel like it's an argument that's worth toying with because if you can yeah. say what if we make the surrounding context instead of having the normal thing where people have to sit down and shut up and dress up and you know um all this kind of stuff what if we create an environment where they that you know despite their best intentions they're coming to a, an art music concert and they find that they're laughing and that they can you know like read along with funny program notes and or and, and it doesn't have to be right. laughter and funny but like they're having sort of a uh, we're reaching them on a an emotional plane uh they're having an unexpected experience and and particularly because this show was all madrigals you know they're getting the the humor and they realize that it's okay to be even laugh out loud in the middle of a, of a in the middle piece. of a this concert not, yeah i mean this is not like going to church you hear the right. music and you're like oh this is this is very important music from the you know the italian the renaissance renaissance you're right. like sure it is but also do you know what they're singing about um <laughs> right and so yeah, I, th I think cause... that was those were all the things that were at play while we were messing with uh the Absolutely. traditional concert format which was one of those three things and i agree that you can't you can't change all the variables all at once for people to know what to make of it but i feel like it's kind of worth it to start tinkering with some of those basic variables yeah totally it makes me think of the and i did a i did an episode about this forever ago about um blue ocean strategy to like to like harangue this by the this conversation by the neck and yank it in a different place of the blue ocean strategy of like okay well for and for those listening who haven't heard of that before or haven't listened to that episode it's this idea of you know when you're in a marketplace in a business marketplace and you're competing against other businesses if it gets too saturated it becomes what he calls a blue a red ocean and so the best way to innovate and to have strategy moving forward is to compete against nobody, which is to say you create your own market and you create a blue ocean like and he uses. And actually, since it's an artistic endeavor, it makes me think of Cirque du Soleil, where, you know, they took the, the circus industry was dying and. And so, and and it was outdated, and there was weird things, and the people didn't know where to put their attention because there's three performers at once, and it's in this smelly tent, and what is happening, you know? But they took the best elements of circus, and they combined it with the best elements of theater and storytelling, and made it sophisticated, and all of a sudden, Cirque du Soleil exists, and they competed against. I mean, they had comp competition that is essentially all the other entertainment in las vegas but in the sense of you know which circus you're not competing you don't have industry specific competition anymore they are cirque du soleil is the only thing like it like itself that exists so when cirque du yeah, soleil well, comes I mean, and that's 
mean, that's kind know. of a, a a principle for creativity anyway is connecting right. connecting previously unconnected dots between two domains or disciplines that didn't seem like they were connected until that moment when you mm -hmm. drew the line and so i think creativity in its you know it just on its own tends to do that sort of un unexpected connection act of connecting but then it that connecting op oftentimes comes out of a, a desire for problem solving and it yeah i mean i rather than being on a circus train going from town to town to town to town to town they probably thought well this is a crappy business model and it's a ton of right. work what if we stayed put yeah <laughs> i mean and there's the, like so many the, on the world <laughs> stage which is las vegas like yeah i just think well and, and it what and what you made me think of is this uh this uh gestalt psychologist uh early 20th century guy carl dunker he uh he had he did a, a study have you seen the the study of the the candle and the and the tax the thumbtacks no but i want to know tell me everything i will tell you everything so he gives this problem it's a psychological experiment that he did about i can't remember exactly what the study was measuring but he was doing the psychology of problem solving and creative thinking. And so he gave people a candle, a thing of thumbtacks and a thing of matches. And your goal, the goal was you have to stick the candle to the wall. You have to attach the candle to the wall without any of the wax dripping down and hitting the floor. And it was like, how do you do that? And people would have varying degrees of success. And, you know, it's like, you know, in the end, the real answer is to put the candle in the container that the tacks were in and then tack the container to the wall. And so, Ooh. yeah, brilliant. Right. Like, and so you, you melt the bottom of the candle to, to the bottom of the box and the box holds it while you tack the box to the wall. And it was like, man, that's amazing. And he talked about the the concept was functional fixedness. And because our brains see, our brains perceive the world through narrative, essentially cause and effect everything, that when we've when we're shown an object, whether it's a philosophical theoretical object, in in the abstract in ideas or a concrete object that you can manipulate with your hands the minute we're shown that object and its proper function we we our brains connect the the function to the object permanently mm. in in what he calls functional fixedness so what you do is you you find a way to look at the object and break break it break it away from its primary or intended function to look at the characteristic components in isolation, which is a, which is a left hemisphere. I, I can't, I get my hemispheres mixed up with the brain, but one hemisphere sees things in its component parts. The other one sees things as a whole. And so trying to shift to th see, okay, I have this piece of cardboard that is containing within it, these metal little pins 
can I set, can I break each object down, every single object I see and, and assign it a new function and connect it to something else. So when we think of the concert format or the madrigal or classical music as a whole, mm. do we, do we subconsciously assign it a function because that was the primary function that it was initially introduced to us with. So how do we break the, the subsequent elements down to be completely isolated and connect it to something else? So then all of a sudden now the concert format doesn't have functional fixedness anymore. Yeah, well, and I think that's really pertinent because at least in the arts administration circles, there's this constant dialogue about how do you refresh, renew, revamp the the yeah. um, performing arts experience so that people show up for it. Because the things that were, you know, fresh and working 50 years ago, in many cases, aren't now. Yeah. And I, I think those kind of, you know, they, they talk about lateral thinking and thought experiments where you, you know, yeah. say, um, I'm you, you just you conjure up a thought experiment not because what you're thinking about is true but because it might be useful and it might change the fixedness that you're that right. you have assigned to something it can one be a my, catalyst for something else yeah right because one of my my favorite examples is, of that is um the the early thought experiment of when they were developing uh early forms of automobiles and somebody said well what if they had square wheels and it's like well you know no, of course, no car is ever going to have square wheels. But the thought experiment of a car kind of lurching and crashing on square wheels is what led to um, early forms of leaf spring suspension. Said, oh, well, you you know, if the wheels were going up and down, you would want the car to stay flat. Jeez, and, yeah, like, oh, right? man, that's so rad. Yeah, and yeah, I think, and I'm a huge fan of, like, uh, of uh creative prompts thought experiments lateral thinking anything that messes with and tinkers with those sort of um inherited automatic assumptions about fixedness and particularly in the context of the the audience experience like in music school never but nobody ever talks about the audience experience especially among That's composers so true it's so true yeah. I mean, composers are the worst because <laughs> the typical training is like, it's all about notes and rhythms and self-expression, the audience be damned. And yeah. I mean, I, that, that wasn't a true. direct quote, but it was nearly a direct quote. <laughs> right. And uh, yeah. nobody thinks that the audience experience matters. And yet in the great big ecosystem of performing arts that keeps any of this even slightly alive, the ultimate judge and jury is the audience experience. Right. Because even, even those composers who started that type of thinking, like you can talk about the safety net of academia and how it's like, okay, you, you know, the direct market of, you know, uh, hand to mouth type of transactions of a mom pop or, or even like a food truck where you make, the, like what you make that day is directly related 100% completely directly on what you produce that day. And, you know, academia, academic music musicians are often so far removed from that direct hand to mouth that 
it's it's hard sometimes to feel that from from their perspective i'm sure it's hard to feel sometimes that the audience is what drives the progression of music because even with stravinsky or schoenberg or some of these what we what we would call innovators if you really look at it like yeah you know the 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 great mythological tale of the riot at the rite of spring the, the audience right right and and even still like audiences still loved his stuff though oh like, yeah like it it wasn't that he was just writing whatever he wanted to intentionally get no audience and who cares what the audience thought he, he he may have had it as a background of what the audience thought, but it was still driven what subconsciously at least by some kind of market forces of, Hey, this audience is going to accept or deny this. And yeah, and he, it, had the, he had the mentality of a rock and roller and he knew he it. Totally did. He totally did. George Frederick Handel, dude, the dude was, the dude looked like the guitarist from queen and he acted like it. It was, I amazing. thought he was actually in kiss. George Handel. Yeah, and the band Kiss. Well, he was, but no one really <laughs> talks about that cuz they they think it's not art music, but <laughs> him and Gene got along great. <laughs> but like I I think it's I th and you know it's really but but I think what's interesting is having dabbled in the composer field myself but being in the choral world. I think the choral world may have may be suffering a little bit from the opposite end of the spectrum oh sure of 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 we think of the audience of maybe not the opposite maybe that's the wrong word my perception is that there might be a slight misdiagnosis of what the audience really cares about Hmm. I think it might they I see a lot of choral music happening that's you know pop music for choral arrangements and there's or choral arrangements of pop music there's nothing inherently wrong with that and and other music that doesn't have very high craft but has heartwarming messages of the of whatever topic happens to be trendy and and they and and this idea of like constantly preaching to the to the audience about how important it is to be united and connected and yeah those are all real things but but i don't know if that's really what the audience is asking for is heavy-handedness in that i mm. think that's the instance where experiencing something great together like truly great together will do that on its own without the heavy without the unnecessary heavy-handedness i guess to say it i don't well, I think that and again brings that, us back that's not a to, or well, sorry that ahead. brings us back to kind of where we started which is mm -hmm. i mean at the end of the day you and i both love the 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 really well-crafted stuff from the renaissance and uh and so the question is like how do you how do you hold to the highest artistic standard 
right? Like an uncompromising right. standard of choral music where the craft is really deep, the counterpoint is fabulous, the the lines are long, and the singing is great. And the singing uh, is like unparalleled, like perfect ensembleness, right? Like, oh yeah, yeah. perfect but tone. How do you how do you crack open other dimensions in the format to make that music right explode for people who haven't had that kind of experience with it before? And I think yeah. the answer is you you don't dial down the craft and dial up the gummy bears or whatever. I think what you at least what we've been attempting to try, not that it's like, you know, a closed book or something, but it's like what we can yeah. think what we've been attempting is what do you do with the the concert experience and all of the variables that go into that to to change the game a little bit for people so that they come and have a, a new kind of experience with the, the music. Um, mm -hmm. that's and again, the, that's, that's the well, big exciting question. Right. And it's not to say that any of those other things, like I, I, I don't ever want to come across that I'm critical of other choral conductors because I know, like, I think if one of one, if choir music rises in popularity somewhere, it's going to rise in popularity somewhere else because we're not oh, competing. Yeah. We're not competing Absolutely. against each other, right? We're competing against Netflix and all these other things. So it's like, <laughs> but it's, and, and so every market has to, but, but that's the thing. So like the questions that we're asking, whether, whether or not it's always conscious, the, the market of the Wasatch front Salt Lake Provo, is like always the first place on my mind of who I who my audience is. Yeah, and sure. do I do I think it works everywhere else? Yeah, probably, but maybe not as effectively. Like maybe this wouldn't work in a place like London where they do just love to go and sit and listen to Palestrina. It makes no sense, but they all do it. Their audiences just love it. Because well, it's of... not either. It's not either or. Yeah, I mean, I was in London last October, and I sat down at King's Place for a pretty heady concert of nothing but Josquin. Oh and man, so freaking it was, cool! It was transformative. It was elegant. It was everything. Um, but these aren't. It's not either or. I think that you can. Yeah. You can have music like that presented like that that is great and wonderful, and you can have excellent music presented in unexpected formats too because i I was also in london i guess it was seven years ago or something and saw a shakespeare play that was presented in an immersive theater context where we followed the characters of the play i want to say it was as you like it it was definitely it was a comedy i can't remember which but we followed them through the the gardens at in windsor and you went from Dang. one scene to the next following the characters and you had some characters that were doing aerial silks hanging from trees and then you end so up cool. at the end of the show at the wedding feast and we the audience turned out to be all the guests at the wedding and that's amazing you know was it as good as seeing uh hamlet at the old vic in bristol last october well yeah but it was like but apples in like different ways. It was apple. Right. Yeah, it was like good in like in incomparable ways. And I think that's what the the kind of the message of the blue ocean idea is is if you can be anything 
be in a different category and open yeah. up a new sort of a new lane. And um, I think that is certainly an appealing and very fun territory mm-hmm. to be in for a choral music. Yeah. Sweet. Well, what a great thing that we've experienced this morning. Any conversation with Mr. Kavanaugh is a great thing. And one Andrew Maxfield, full of whim, whimsy and wisdom. So wow. we will, yes, we should do a part two of this. And we can talk about maybe some of the music that we that we kind of crafted together for Sing Actually of oh, yeah. how how we got to this madrigal idea, what madrigals we used from which time periods. And we can do uh, a little bit of a deep dive into poor Richard, poor Richard's madrigal. It. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, maybe, uh, yeah. Yeah, I don't have it. I'm just, I'm just thinking out loud, so. Well, but I think we'll, this, we is will chat kind, again. this is the kind of cliffhanger that will lead regular listeners of Really Music Monday to be checking their phones habitually every every couple of minutes to say when is the next episode. Hoping that the title is misleading them and that there's going to be an episode before the next Monday. Whoa. Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, deliver on that. <laughs> Oh, man. Okay, well, Drew, it's been real. Till next time. Rock on, as they say in early music. (laughs) It's true. Okay, so I wanted to play a piece for you from Sing Actually, a piece by uh, Thomas Tompkins. Thomas Tompkins is one of my all-time faves, especially his piece, When David Heard. I think it's the best setting of When David Heard that I've ever heard or anyone's ever heard in the history of herds. And, but that's just me for a lot of reasons the just the way he sets the text i think thomas tompkins is such a an amazing madrigalist and kind of the peak the last of the elizabethan 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 however you say it composers who who captures this uh genre of madrigal completely and kind of to its fullest extent before things start to change in the next generation of composers. But it's really amazing. And we actually performed his piece, Too Much I Once Lamented, on our Sing Actually program. And so when I was first uh, listening to Tompkins, and I've listened to his work, his pieces for a long time, but I had never heard Too Much I Once Lamented. And when I first was listening and following along in the score, doing my initial research, it's like, oh, you know, I, it was beautiful. And 
not necessarily like, oh, you know, whatever, another run-in-the-mill madrigal. It was very Tompkins, and I love his work. So I was immediately taken in by the expression. But then he gets to these fa-la-la sections, and I was like, wait, what is happening? It's like complete musical schizophrenia, a musical ADD where he bounces back and forth between these completely insanely opposite things of pouring out his soul in lament to these fa-la-la skipping through the forest. And at first I didn't know what to make of it, but it's it's really interesting, and maybe Andrew and I will dive into some of the analysis of it next week, but I just want to play for you Too Much I Once Lamented, performed by Sound of Ages, as part of our Sing Actually program.
Alexa, stop. Alexa, skip the follow laws. Okay. Okay. Shenanigans. Nonsense. Clearly nonsense. But thanks for spending your Monday morning with us, or if you're not listening to it on Monday morning, whatever time you spend, we really appreciate it. So please like and subscribe. Follow us on the social medias, all the things. Um, We're looking forward to part two of our episode of the Andrew special where we talk about Sing Actually and dive into a couple of Andrew's pieces that he wrote for this program. And uh, we'll see you next time on Early Music Monday.